Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Bruce Dunn, Canadian Bruce Wallace Dunn, responding to his choice for location after graduating Wheaton College, wrote, California, otherwise, no preference. As it happened, Dunn's career did not move him westward, but straight south to Peoria, Illinois. As road-weary vaudevillains used to say, if it'll play in Peoria, it'll play anywhere. There, Dunn's fruitful ministry played for decades, not because of chance, but as a result of, as he observed, many prayers, much planning, and sacrificial giving by hundreds of people. Today, Bruce Dunn presents a sermon on the unfinished work of Christ. The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. finished work of Christ is a popular one among all of us evangelicals, and it surely does state a great truth, namely that his atonement for our sins and redemption in that sense that there is now total and complete forgiveness and the assurance of eternal life because of the blood of Jesus, that work has been accomplished. As the Lord said himself in John 17, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. And on the cross, he cried out in the last moments of agony, finished. He partook of flesh and blood that he might taste death for every man, the Bible says. He came down voluntarily to lay down his life in atonement for our sins and then to take it again to be a living Savior interceding at God's right hand on our behalf. This morning I want us to think together in the moments we have about the unfinished work of Jesus Christ. And I would like to suggest to you that that unfinished work of Jesus Christ can be centered around three words. And uh, I want to do that this morning, give you some pegs to hang the thoughts on a little bit, maybe help you to remember them a little longer than if we just rambled around the map somewhere. Let me give you the three words now, and then you can go to sleep, some of you, and Go out of here and tell what the three points were and make everybody think you were wide awake during the whole sermon. The first word is perfection. The second word is restoration. The third word is judgment. Perfection, restoration, judgment. Under these three categories, we can describe pretty much what the unfinished work of Christ is as of this moment. First of all, the word perfection. Speaking, of course, in individual terms about the individual believer, we have his promise in Philippians 1.6 that the good work which he has begun he will perfect or perform until the day of Jesus Christ. And I believe we mentioned it earlier this week that that good work which begins at salvation is the work of once again 
making us after his own image and after his own likeness. It is to repeat the work that took place at creation. And once again, to repair the damages done by sin and make it possible for each of us progressively to move toward the day when ultimately it is assured us we shall be like Jesus. But the Lord doesn't want that to take place in just one big fell swoop when we see him. He desires and intends that progressively we should be moving in that direction from the moment of salvation. He wants us by the means of grace and all the the means he has made available to us to, to make some advancement toward being more like Jesus, as we sing in the hymn, Be like Jesus, this my song, in the home and in the throng. And this is to be our ambition. We are to have some spiritual ambition to improve in Christlikeness. And this is a work that he's now doing. Now that covers uh, a lot of areas, that in itself. Uh, for example, uh, his prayer life at the Father's right hand is committed to that objective and that goal. And if you want to know what the Lord Jesus is praying at the Father's right hand, you really need to read and study the 17th chapter of John, where you have his high priestly prayer. And you have in that prayer various petitions uh, most all of which really can apply at this moment to the prayers he is making on your behalf and mine. Praying, for example, that you and I will be kept from the evil one. And incidentally, it says in that prayer, I, not, I pray not only for these whom thou hast given me, meaning his present disciples at that moment, but for all those who will believe on me through their word. That brings us right down to 1978. That the Lord's prayer life involves you and me, and that is a very blessed and happy thought. He is praying for our progress, our advancement in Christian growth and Christlikeness, and that involves being kept from the evil one. Now, if I may uh, divert a little bit, and yet I don't know as it is a diversion, really, I take a great deal of consolation out of that prayer to know that Christ is praying that I will be kept and that I will ultimately arrive safe home in his presence. Uh, some of my people here know that one of my favorite texts, and by the way, a text that God has greatly used in connection with memorial services, is in that same chapter, John 17, verse 24. Father, I will that those whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. His prayer is that we will arrive safe home someday in his presence that we will be kept from the evil one. Now, this is one reason. It's not the only reason, I hasten to add, but this is one reason why I am a very firm and strong, and if anything, increasingly strong, year by year, believer in the security of, of, of the saints. 
Because if Christ's prayer for me is not going to be answered, I give up on all praying. I think praying is a total waste of time if the prayers of Jesus Christ are not going to be answered. Because he doesn't have any of the problems that confront me in matters of prayer. The Bible says if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That is no problem for Jesus Christ. It says, if his words, if I abide in him and his words abide in me, I shall ask what I will and uh, it shall be done unto me. That can be sometimes a problem for me. It's no problem for Christ who is one with the Father. And all the principles and regulations that govern effective praying, they are all fulfilled and more than met in the life and ministry and conduct of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's absolutely no obstacle in the way for his prayers being heard. And the Bible says, if he hear us, we know that we have the petitions we desired of him. And so I have Christ's prayers for me that I will be kept eternally, that I will arrive safe home in heaven. I just can't believe this idea that you can be saved today and lost tomorrow and saved next week and lost a month after and then saved again. I can't buy that at all. Granted, we need chastening and we will not get away with falling into sin. We will be spanked, if you please. And if we are really sheep with the nature of sheep and are part of God's flock, we're going to be very miserable and very unhappy when we fall into the mud. We'll want to get out of it. The difference between a hog, the nature of a hog, and the nature of a sheep is that when the hog falls into the mud, he says, boy, this is living, and he stays there. And when a sheep falls into the mud, he's miserable, he's unhappy, he has a new nature that can't be pleased to stay there, and uh, he wants to get out of it. And part of the unfinished work of Christ is a tremendous prayer ministry that never ceases until the pearly gates clang behind us and we walk into his presence. God is praying for you night and day. I remember, and I think I've probably told this incident here before, I remember one late night listening to a church program from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, the speaker was speaking from the 121st Psalm about how the Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. He preserves thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And he told about the two senior citizens in a senior citizen's home had become quite chummy over the years and were together all the time, sitting out on the bench on the lawn one day, the two gentlemen, one, they're both of them over 80, 85 years of age, and one said to the other, he said, I can't, something I can't understand about you. He said, what's that? He says, the way you sleep at night. He says, you, you sleep like a baby, solid all the way through. He says, I'm up and down and fits and starts and rolling and so on. And he said, how do you do it? He said, well, I'll tell you how I do it. He said, many years ago, he said, I was taught, and he said, I believed it, that the Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. And he says, I just decide there's no use both of us staying up all night. <laughs> so he says, I decide I leave it to him. <laughs> Let him take care of it. Well, there's a lot of truth there. All depend on Christ's prayers on your behalf. 
which have in mind your deliverance from evil day by day, but also have in mind your ultimate perfection and your growth in that direction. That's a part of his prayer ministry. Then, of course, you have the fact that he is at the moment preparing a perfect place for us. I go to prepare a place for you, he said. And that work is going on and has been going on for about 2,000 years. It must be quite a place, by the way. And that's a part, a perfect place for us. Never be a perfect one down here. We, we think we found one sometimes. Uh, uh, Florida seems so perfect about the middle of February, but even Florida hasn't been very perfect the last couple of years. It's been too chilly down there. you know. But he's preparing a perfect place for his redeemed people. And then, of course, the fact of his administration of our daily affairs has in mind our perfection. The Lord is not a one off the premises who who's just removed himself from the scene of your personal, individual life and cares and problems and anxieties and troubles. His daily providences. He administrates our personal affairs with our perfecting in mind, a high goal, a noble objective, always in mind, no low level purposes at all. But He has in mind making you and making me a better person, a better mother, a better father, a better husband, a better wife, a better pastor, a better layman, a better elder, a better deacon, whatever you are. Just an all-round better person. And in order to achieve that goal, we just have to experience some very unpleasant, distasteful circumstances sometimes. That's a part of the training. And we'll never be equipped to do the best job for the Lord unless we've experienced some heartaches and some sorrow. When I was a, in, still in college and had my first student pastored up in Wisconsin, about 50 miles north of Madison, a circuit of three churches, I had some funerals. And I attempted, and, and with some measure of success, I suppose, to really sympathize with the people and help them in their time of sorrow and bereavement, but I'm sure I fell far short of the mark, and I suppose I still do to some extent, but I'm sure that after I stood beside three or four caskets in my own family, that I was a little better standing beside somebody at a casket, is it? It was a part of my training to make me better. And sometimes the only explanation for your troubles are that somewhere down the road, in the providence of God, your path will cross somebody in the same kind of trouble that you had maybe years before, and as the scripture puts it, you will be able to comfort them with the same comfort wherewith you yourself was comforted of God. 
And there are too many of us Christians, when we run into troublous times or, or start to be terribly upset that what terrible sin have I committed, what terrible wrong have I done, how far have I stepped out of the will of God that this should happen to me. Now, there, there, may, be, uh, there may be reasons like that involved sometimes, but by no means all the time. You might be like Job and living a good godly life and seeking to follow the Lord, and your tests and trials might be coming to you because God has been bragging on you to the devil. And the devil says, well, we'll just see about that. And the only reason for Job's trouble was an invisible one in the spiritual world. God boasted about him. Hast thou considered my servant Job? What a noble, godly man he is. Satan said, oh yeah, he's serving you because of how good you are to him. Of course, the Lord didn't let that challenge go, and you know the story. I won't go into that. But God allows these things. He administrates our affairs day by day. He has in mind our perfection. That's what he prays for, and that's what he lives for. And that's, that's another factor we want to mention. We are saved by his life, it says. If we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, says in Romans 5. Which is an interesting statement as you examine a little bit. In other words, the biggest problem of all was to bring about that initial reconciliation to bridge that tremendous gulf between a holy God and sinful man. And if Jesus Christ could solve the largest problem by his death, how much more do you suppose he can accomplish by his life? The fact that he lives not only in heaven, but he lives in our hearts. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. And Christ is not far off somewhere outside of us, but day by day, in every situation, in every circumstances, we have one who is with us at that moment who never leaves us nor forsakes us. I'm sure some of you remember Dr. Walter L. Wilson here saying, one time he's speaking about the verse that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in his inimitable way, he it lighted upon those two words, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now he says sometimes a husband or a wife, because of their employment or their job or other factors, have to leave their wives, but they never forsake them. They have to go to a distant city for a week business conference or something, but they always come back. They never forsake them, but they do leave them. He said, the Lord Jesus says, I'm not going to even leave you. Never leave you, nor forsake you, with you every moment. Christ liveth in me, Paul said, and the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So all these factors are involved in God's work of perfection. His daily providences, his intercessory prayer life, his living presence in our hearts day by day, his administration of all our affairs has to do with our perfection. 
Let me add another thought to this idea. His perfecting also has to do not on, with us not only on an individual basis, but uh, in our relationship to each other in his body, the church. And you read in Ephesians how God has given to the church gifts, and the gifts there mentioned are people, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, for the edifying of the church, it says, for the ministry for the perfecting of the ministry. That's a hard pill to swallow sometimes when you don't get along with your pastor and somebody else to think that God's given him as a gift. That's a little hard for some, on some occasions to believe, I suppose. But uh, the Lord says that. Pastors and teachers, evangelists is there. And so God is working in us also in a group basis. To build us together in the body of Christ and as expressed very often, of course, in the local church. He's building the church. He has quite a job with that sometimes, doesn't he? And by the way, in the book of Peter, 1 Peter, he talks about how uh, we are built up individually. It says we're built up by desiring the sincere milk of the word. We're built up by laying aside all malice and guile and evil speakings and so on. But then he also says that uh, we are to keep on coming to Jesus. Verse 4, 1 Peter 2, 4. To whom coming as unto a living stone. Verse 5. You also as living stones are built up a spiritual house. Now he doesn't say spiritual houses, plural. He's talking about the church at Ephesus, the local congregation. And he says, as you Christians keep on coming to Jesus, he's not talking about the initial experience of salvation, but as you keep on coming to Jesus, day by day, about everything, as the hymn says, everything to God in prayer, God in your plans, God in your career, God in your vocation, God in your sorrows, God in your problems. You keep on coming to Jesus, he says. You are built up a spiritual house. Talking about the church, not houses. Talking about the church. Christians being perfected together into, a, into the body of Christ in the church. You know why many churches are, are, are a long way from being a spiritual house? As old Billy Nicholson used to say, some churches you could put a pail of milk in the back door and it'd be ice cream in 15 minutes. I don't know how true that is. Some truth to that. He says, in order for a church to be built up into a spiritual house, God's presence there felt and known. Young people called into God's service in the church. Missionaries going out from the church. A warmth, the spiritual atmosphere there. It has to be if you have enough Christians in the church who keep on coming to Jesus. You are built up a spiritual house. Now, it is possible even for a church, and I'm not talking about way out in left field churches or liberal churches here now. It's possible to have a church that is thoroughly correct in its doctrine, completely orthodox and true to the theology of the Bible, 
correct about the person and the work of Jesus Christ and not be a spiritual house. Because the Christians in it are not continually coming to Jesus. Is it? You examine the churches these days that are touching lives and doing anything, you will find that while I'm sure it's never 100%, you will find that there is a substantial number of people in the congregation who are constantly coming to Jesus. And so when they come together in the sanctuary in the same room, there's some possibility of a poor sinner being touched by the Holy Spirit because a spiritual house is being built there. You see? God has in mind the perfecting of his people in the church. And he said pastors and teachers and evangelists are all essential to that. It is a tragedy that so many ministries today are so out of balance. There are some churches that get nothing but evangelism every Sunday, and that's all. And we... we Appreciate that. That is wonderful. But it is a it is a uh, uh, rather poor diet, very unbalanced diet. God says, "I've given to the church pastors, teachers, evangelists, all of them." And in order to grow, for a church to grow, it must have a well-balanced diet that covers the gamut, you see, from one end to the other, that feeds and teaches and instructs and exposits the scriptures as well as. Always with an evangelistic spirit, even in an expository sermon. God says, I, I, every church needs them all. Haven't you met some people? They'll stay away from church say, oh, stay away from evangelistic meetings. I don't go for that evangelistic meeting stuff. Well, they're just cheating themselves. Or some church say, we'll never have any meeting that even savors of being evangelistic and so on. We can't stand that. We're just going to teach, 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 cheating themselves. God says you need them all. I gave these gifts to people. You need them all in order to perfect the saints. Well, now I'm running out of time. I've only come to the first. Let's just quickly mention the next two words. The second word of the unfinished work of Christ is restoration. And I shall just rather quickly enumerate what I have in mind there. He has a work to do in restoring creation. It's mentioned in Romans 8. It is suggested in Colossians where it says that all things were created by him and for him and unto him. And Christ's work somehow would fall a bit short of the mark, his redemptive work. If creation itself is not someday allowed to feel the full impact of his redemption. Creation groans and travails waiting for its redemption. And the work of Christ is incomplete if in any area Satan's damages that he performed with the entrance of sin into the world is allowed to go unchallenged and unrepaired. And Christ someday is destined to restore creation. He's going to undergo some dramatic changes when Jesus comes again. Isaiah chapter 2 describes some of that. 
in the animal kingdom, in all the world of creation, Christ has still a work to do. And then, secondly, our bodies must be changed and made like unto his own glorious body. And thirdly, he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Acts 1 says that. I cannot understand, I really can't, in the light of all the scriptures, our millennial friends who insist that Israel has no special place and no special future, when Christ in his post-resurrection Bible class evidently taught the disciples, yes, someday he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He must have taught them that, and they never would ask a question which otherwise would be stupid, because in, in that resurrection Bible class they said, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He didn't say, you dumbos. Where'd you get that idea? Where are your ears? been while I've been preaching. He just said it's not for you to know when. That's going to happen. And the restoration of course is all by way of his return. He's going to do it. Begin won't do it. Sadat certainly won't do it. No combination of the western world or the communist world will do it. The Lord Jesus Christ has that unfinished work. Now the last one and I must wrap it up in just a moment or two. His final Part of unfinished work is judgment. The judgment of believers as to their rewards. And I might suggest to you that that really is the second major step in the prophetic program. The first next major step, I believe, is the removal of the church, the born-again believers from this world. And if that's the first one, the second one immediately is that judgment seat of Christ for believers to determine what your status and position will be when that kingdom begins, when we return with him to this earth. Judgment. Revelation 19, the judgment of unbelievers, the great white throne, an unfinished work of Jesus Christ. Revelation 20, verse 10, the judgment of his chief adversary and ours and his enemies, Satan, to be cast forever and done away with. Well, Christ is going to judge the world. If commercializing the temple brought the whip of judgment during Jesus' earthly days, if commercializing the temple brought the whip of judgment in Jesus' days, what should we say of the uglier sins of our day, the sex obsession, the degrading of marriage and the home, the moral perversions, the murdering of unwanted babies, the setting free of rapists and murderers. If we who are sinners by nature and whose fleshly nature sometimes responds so favorably to what our conscience says is wrong, is evil, what about an infinitely holy God? How is he going to react to it when even we sinners react sometimes the way we do? And if the neglect or the abuse of Jesus Christ is the sin of all sins as it is, how can we possibly imagine that that will be without penalty? He has a lot of unfinished business to do in perfection, in restoration, and in judgment. Let us bow in prayer. Father, bless to our hearts these considerations of thy word this morning. 
Continue to be with us throughout this day. Make this a great day in the life of each believer here and indeed a day of salvation for any who have not yet trusted Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. All the people said, Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Bruce Dunn. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.